On today's episode of Fauda, I'm not a sugar-coated architect. Mm, yeah. I don't necessarily uh, enjoy sugar-coated architecture. So prior to VO18, there were 16 uh, what I call abortions. We were living a time of denial, a culture of denial, we were talking things under the carpet, until the carpet exploded, literally. I, if anything, celebrated this delicious denial of the post-war bourgeois society in a very perverted way and tried to give it meaning. Beirut is a city where, where it is very, very difficult to make a statement that will survive the test of time. Certitude is impossible in Beirut. Me saying for the last 30 years that the war was not over and trying to, uh, trying to formulate that through my architecture, through my buildings, not in a negative way, uh, but if anything, in a defensive way, uh, turned out to be true. Hello. I think, first and foremost, the three of us here should thank you for an amazing childhood because yeah. <laughs> BO18 was uh, literally at the forefront of our childhoods. So thank you very much for the part you played in BO18. And I just wanted to know, how did that come about? How did designing BO18 come about? Well, more than the design, it was, um, it was what preceded the architecture, which I think was very important. BO18 started with uh, a great friendship, in fact, a number of friendships, and a lot of music, a lot of partying, very informal, uh, but if there is something even called the BO18 experience, as far as I'm concerned, for me, it started at some point in the mid 80s, late 80s, in a small studio uh, where we used to party uh, and where the so-called musical therapy sessions <laughs> used to happen. Uh, these were evenings that were very, very long. We end up next day in the morning where we were not allowed to speak. So we were, we were packed in a tiny little studio with about 3,000 vinyl discs, which was a lot of, a lot of music at the time. Uh, and this is where I got to, uh, this is where I was exposed to the little I know about music. So it started with music that was very far from what you hear in nightclubs. Uh, and I've had my share of the nightlife at the time, you know, where, whether it was in New York, uh, you know, in, in, in clubs such as Save the Robots that didn't have, didn't have a license in Alphabet City, so very dangerous areas to Berlin and so on and so forth. But what we heard back then uh, was, uh, was very unheard of in terms of mix. Uh, it was very improbable. So VO18 was first of all music. And then, uh, and then a, a set of circumstances that made it possible for us to take this thing from very private gatherings to uh, to something that was more public, and then the story is very long, very very complicated. <laughs> a lot of pirates involved. And, uh, Welcome to Lebanon. Yeah, as as usual. But that was great. Yeah. And that was your first kind of. Uh, I don't want to be cheesy and have labels, but big break was was the but project. It was, with it, was, it was the first thing I ever built. Mm. Really. So I had been, I had started, I started my, my independent practice 
five years prior to building BO18. So prior to BO18, there were 16, uh, what I call abortions, <laughs> projects that were basically tried to conceive but never came to life. Yeah. Uh, and BO18 was the first one that made it to uh, construction, to execution. And in, in very, in very exceptional circumstances, because I must, I must say, I was very, very fortunate to uh, to be pretty much the sole decision maker when it comes to, to taking decisions relative to its architecture, its construction. Uh, well, there was a lot of dialogue with Naji, who was the man piloting the machine, and he was very central in establishing the scenario. Uh, and I'm talking about something that is way beyond architecture. Uh, I'm talking about building situations, making situations possible. Uh, this is someone who knows the nightlife extremely well. Uh, someone who was already a professional drum player by the age of 12 and uh, knows Beirut extremely well, knows his music extremely well. So that was very central to, to building that scenario. And, and, and turning what precedes the architectural act into something interesting. And to me, that's far more important than architecture itself. You cannot have an interesting architecture if what precedes the architectural act is not interesting. It's basically like sex. Yeah. There's no good sex if what precedes the act is not good. Mm. Yeah. You also have to be interested to a certain extent. You have to build it up. There's a psychological There has to yeah. be something that is beyond just, uh, you know, the very basic carnal act. And, and that is meaning, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because after you know the success of something like Bo18, I know you designed a bunch of projects in the entertainment sector. I know that there was the uh, Yabani building, which was extremely interesting. So, did you find that people started to kind of pigeonhole you as a entertainment architect, or would you say that your love for going out, having fun? venturing to many different countries where you experienced several different nightlife sectors is what allowed you to become more of an like venture towards that path well i think what we did in beirut has nothing to do with what i would have seen what i'd seen in in in, in new york or or paris or berlin or other cities uh in a far more interesting way um so i don't think i was influenced by, by what I had seen. We did not import a formula or recipe from abroad. I think BO18 and whatever followed in the entertainment industry was very much of a local uh, phenomenon, local product. Uh, and I think Beirut was and still is in many ways in, in a very a very explosive but also very a very interesting environment. Uh, it is full of contradictions. That is extremely sour uh, in many ways, but, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a sugar-coated architect. Mm, yeah. I don't necessarily uh, enjoy sugar-coated architecture. Mm. And um, so, but why the entertainment sector? Well, mainly because no one trusted me to build anything else, <laughs> no, honestly. Yeah. Um, I spent five years from 93 to 98 making proposals that were basically uh, dismissed by those who were, uh, you know, uh, those who made the important decisions when it comes to money and investing. You wouldn't trust 
your kids to live in, uh, they wouldn't trust it to, 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 they wouldn't trust me to build apartments or conceive of houses uh, in which families would have to raise kids. You know, I didn't have the right profile for that. Uh, there wasn't any serious public uh, buildings being being raised at the time. There were no public competitions. You know, when I when I when I when I started my career in '93, uh, I was still at the time very optimistic about a reconstruction project that we were all hoping for and, and aiming for and waiting for. Uh, and the reconstruction is not just rebuilding. Uh, it's not about construction of buildings, but it's about uh, it's about the reconstruction of a nation. It's about uh, the organization of its institutions. It's about formulating a, some kind of common history. It is about addressing uh, very sour and difficult issues that led you to the problem that you've just come out of, supposedly. Uh, this never really happened. And it took me a few years to understand that there was no reconstruction project, that the institutions were not being rebuilt, that the nation state was not going to be rebuilt, and that the city and the territory as a whole here was in the hands of the private sector. And this obviously comes with its problems, because there is no consensual project around which we all agree upon. There are no mechanisms of control. Uh, there is no real reconstruction. And to a certain extent, this means that the war is not over. And I've said this many times in the late 90s, in the early 2000s. And when I would say this, they would tell me that, you know, I was still living in the past. I even said it to Rafil Hariri himself once, uh, who told me in Arabic, yeah. يستشهد. ف you know I don't know who was right and who was wrong and I'm I'm sorry to say that I was right. Uh, you know that this was this was we were living a time of denial, a culture of denial. Where we were talking things under the carpet, talking things under the carpet until the carpet exploded, literally. And in 2005, and then whatever followed followed. Uh, the political the ruling class came. Came, uh, came forward and recuperated the so-called revolution, and we saw where it led yeah. till today. So there was no reconstruction. Now, I'm going back to your question about me building nightclubs. When you're not in a culture or in a territory that, that, that assesses basically history and tries to reformulate a consensual common history by means of rebuilding moni by building monuments or public buildings, opera houses, museums, public housing, schools, hospitals, when this does not exist, and when you as a young architect still believe that architecture is a political act, uh, and uh, you desperately want to, uh, to act on your territory and produce some kind of meaning, you resort to whatever is possible, whatever is, is within your reach. And at the time, what was in my reach was entertainment. Entertainment, yes, because I used to spend my nights and my evenings in bars, partying, yes, and this is maybe the community that maybe trusted me most. Mm -hmm. It turns out that the entertainment sector allowed me to practice architecture as a political act. And looking back, I think probably far more than what my colleagues did in Europe 
while building uh, museums, uh, libraries, and conventional uh, monuments or institutional buildings, as they basically had to comply with a set agenda, uh, had to comply with the values, uh, at least the core, the basic values of the institutions that made these buildings possible or their commissions possible. Again, what precedes the architectural act is what matters. And when you're dealing with an institution, the core and the basics, the, 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 what, what makes the building be possible or come around is something you don't question. The fundamental issues of the, existing, the existence of a situation are there. Uh, here, they're not. When you're asked to build a nightclub, you're not accountable for the political posture that you take. Huh? You have to be nobody looks at you. Nobody looks at your project as a political project to start with. And this gives you more freedom. the latitude mm -hmm. to take radical postures you wouldn't take mm -hmm. in a more serious project, supposedly, that is accountable. I think it's very interesting because I remember we were just having a conversation outside on the balcony where you were saying that, in your opinion, education with regards to architecture has to be completely restructured. And you were talking about you working on entertainment uh, pro architectural projects earlier. And I guess that if you, were have, if you worked in something a bit more institutionalized, that might have limited your independent uh, capability of taking full control of the project, which may have limited your creativity in general. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't be as, as drastic, as radical as, as, as to say that it would have limited my, my potential of creating or creativity. I just have never asked, I've never, yeah. never had access to that. Yeah. But to go back to uh, to this idea of uh, of the architectural education uh, reassessing its state today, I'm not I'm not talking about architectural schools locally. Mm. I'm saying in general, um, from an international perspective. From an international perspective, I think the architectural uh, academia, if anything, in architecture is in in a state of total bankruptcy. In what way? Complete bankruptcy. Nothing way? is coming out of schools. Nothing, nothing is coming out of school, and particularly out of the big schools that we look at as, you know, I, I come out of Harvard and I tell you Harvard is packed with idiots. Yeah. Packed with idiots. Nothing comes out of Harvard. Yeah. It's done. It's basically so where are they coming from then? Or what, like, if, what, what is No, no, because, because, uh, the architectural world or the academy or the guardians of the field today are, are in a state of, 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 of such defense, uh, uh, a defensive state of the territory of architecture, which is, in my opinion, totally disconnected from what, you know, where meaning is being produced these days. Um, architectural media in general is in complete uh, bankruptcy also. Uh, I'm interested in, in accidents that happen here and there but what interests me doesn't interest them at yeah, all. Yeah. At all. So you, you were mentioned outside. Because, so Ryan, Ryan uh, mentioned how uh, you've, you were kind of described as an entertainment architect. Because we were talking outside, you were saying how the art of architecture, the craft itself, it used to be architects who build cultures. Now they are more just adapting to the existing culture and just building around it. Yeah, architecture has become, at its best, uh, a pale representation of, of culture and politics. A very pale, superficial representation of culture and politics. It no longer structures societies, it no longer produces meaning. Uh, 
it is really, really dragging behind. It started dragging behind with the beginning of the, of the, the machine age, with the acceleration of the machine age, and then it slowly lost touch, and with the digital revolution, it was completely disqualified. So, so today I see, I look at, you know, this, this the, the, what I would qualify at its best, or the architectural masturbation that satisfies mm. uh, the academics, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those. I, but you know, when, if I want to look at it in a very, on a small scale, I'm going to small on the scale, um, your, your works and uh, all of the work that you did after the Civil War, let's say, in the entertainment field with the nightclubs and everything, they did kind of, in a way, shape the culture of the younger person of Lebanon. Younger because generation. Now, the, now the, young, the younger generation, when you speak to anyone abroad who's, let's say, in their early 20s, even late 20s, I would say now, even 30s, they can almost describe Lebanon as a party place. It is a place where you go, you have a good time, you go out, you drink, you eat, you do all of that stuff. And if you want to look at it in that in that sense, you played a major role in making that thing happen. I didn't I didn't take the party literally as you know on its on its superficial level. I in, again in the absence of of the politically relevant architectural act and the conventions of architecture as we know it through museums and, in, and, and, and institutional projects, in the absence of that, and in my desperate search of meaning in the vulgar and in what doesn't, that does, had, has no political content at the outset, I, I, I tried to, uh, to look for, search for meaning where you don't usually expect it. Uh, if you look at Bezero 18, if you're, you're referring to, to the entertainment projects, but I'll take you to other fields yes, beyond, the, beyond, beyond the entertainment please. project. But if we're talking about the entertainment projects, you look at Central, B018, Yabani, they are not joyful spaces to begin with in the sense that they're not necessarily comfortable to begin with. Central had to be modified the year after it was built. You probably don't remember it, you're probably too young, but when Central was built in 2000, there was one single table in the middle. Um, where uh, the staff was trapped and imprisoned inside the table oh. with stairs leading to the, uh, to the kitchen, to the hall where they belong, literally in the center of the table. <laughs> so, and they were standing and they were walking on a, on a, on a, on a shiny stainless steel uh, surface uh, to serve you, walking on a plane that was 40 centimeters lower than you, so you would look down at them. They never shared the space you were seated at. On, and it was it was it was uh, 40 to 45 persons seated, with very high back chairs, extremely heavy. It was a pastoral table, a very institutional setup with an absurdly high ceiling, uh, very uncomfortable. People couldn't speak to each other. Some people hated it, some people loved it, but there was something very uncomfortable about it. Uh, and uh, just like there's, there could be something great about an uncomfortable movie, or uncomfortable piece of music, or a very sour dish that you eat. Huh? Um, so that was what Central was about. There was, there was political meaning and discomfort, if anything, in the most unexpected setup, which is a restaurant, which is usually very sugar-coated, very decorative. It was a very rough space. Uh, you walked on pavement that cost us $8 a square meter that we, we literally took from the sidewalk all the way down uh, to the main hall, uh, and so on and so forth. Yabani was all about that also. It was about a very uncomfortable arrival where you're put in situation inside the circular vitrine, uh, greeted by uh, the hostess at the entrance, 
in the middle of ruins, there was something extremely uncomfortable about putting you in this situation and this machine sucking you down uh, underground where you landed in the middle of the bar, completely disconnected from what was outside and you could only see the sky and you were in complete denial with what was literally behind the wall and behind the wall was the neighbor which was a building that was squatted by refugees who were living on a wage that probably was under the meal, the cost of the, you know, the cost of the meal that we were going to eat. So there was something extremely also uncomfortable about that, that celebrated in a very perverted way, but perverted that situation, mm -hmm. uh, which was impossible and absurd to begin with. I'm not the kind of architect who turned his, who turned his back to such uh, absurd situations because they were the political and social realities of our context. I, if anything, celebrated this delicious denial of the post-war bourgeois society in a very perverted way and tried to give it meaning. Uh, and this is part of constructing and building history uh, in maybe a non-objective manner or non-sugar-coated manner, but this is what it was about. This is not a consensual museum or a consensual memorial that tells you the right of the wrong. Huh? Uh, but this is something else. And I believe in architecture being a political act in such situations. I think architects should have the courage to assess and address such difficult situations rather than, you know, what my colleagues do in the West, uh, you know, resort to very politically correct, comfortable situation, or at its most the comfortable, the comfortable radicality that's become a trend today, uh, you know, to me, they're fighting wars that uh, that are extremely comfortable. That I am not, uh, I'm not interested by. Mm. It's interesting that you say that. So you kind of uh, thrived in the absurd. Like you take two dichotomies, like you know, a building filled with refugees who are um, you know living on their minimum wage, and then you couple that right next to you know a very expensive Japanese restaurant, and that's kind of like you're saying very. That sits absurdly where yeah. it was at the time. <laughs> And it's representative of Lebanon. And strangely, that yeah. building, that yeah. building, did my building was uh, was uh, abandoned around the year 2009, 2010. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then comes the revolution in Syria. Uh, in the meantime, the building next door, because of what we had done, uh, started attracting other entertainment venues in the area. And pretty soon, that building was rehabilitated. The refugees were kicked out, or the squatters were kicked out. Mm -hmm. Uh, they became a bourgeois uh, apartment flats uh, building. Uh, and then my building was abandoned. And pretty soon after 2012, 2013, it becomes squatted. <laughs> I visited you know, a few years later and see how the, how the, how the tide turned like, around. Um, uh, where, this is where I would like to address this issue of temporality. Beirut is a city where, where it is very, very difficult to make a statement that will survive the test of time. Certitude is impossible in Beirut. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're commissioned a library in Bordeaux or in Lyon or, or in the suburbs of Berlin, it's there to stay. Uh, it's there to stay with, with on very sound values. Whatever happens, you know, if the government turns left or right, it's totally irrelevant. But there are core values that remain, huh? the values of the, of the nation state and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, here, you can't say that. So uh, one other thing that was very interesting about the entertainment projects is that the first six projects I ever built were temporary projects that had uh, uh, an expiry date 
written on the rental contract of the piece of land before I designed them. Meaning, mm. I was told before I designed them what day they were going to be demolished. BO18 was supposed to be demolished in November 2003, wow. prior to me designing it. So I often compare, make the comparison with, 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 with a pregnant lady who is told that her baby will die at the age of five, mm -hmm. you know, or at the age of nine when you usually give birth to uh, a certain continuity. No, to raise life. Yeah, yeah. Architecture is a bit like that. You build. I was telling you earlier, we live in the Stone Age. As architects, we build, and we have no sense of temporality in the contemporary sense of the term. Um, uh, we think of our constructions, to a certain extent, uh, as very atemporal. Uh, I say architecture generally in, in, uh, in its conventions. Here, as far as I was concerned, it was exactly the opposite. So then again, I could take postures in the present, in the here and now, and be extremely contextual, because I was dealing with a very short span of time. I was dealing with conditions I was in fully control of, because I, I could see the condition, its absurdities, and, and, and take a posture or take a position or build my strategy upon that. Uh, when you're building something that's going to last and, and will have to test that to survive the test of time, uh, your, your kids and the kids of your kids and the generations that follow, it becomes very, very different. That's another problem also that architecture has as a practice, its relationship with time. I didn't have that problem until I switched from temporary buildings to permanent buildings, and that was after 2006. Which is the second chapter. I was going to ask you though, because because Bernard Khoury now is a household name. You you say the name in Lebanon, people recognize it, people know who it is. But this kind of uh, short-term theology that the country has and this expiration dates with your work, how does that kind of, from a business perspective, how does that motivate you to continue to thrive in this weird, adverse situation? Well, it keeps you alive. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Not straight to the point. Yeah, yeah. Straight to the point. We, it, it, develops, it, develops, uh, it develops muscles that have the tendency to be nor uh, dormant mm. with other species who live in... Uh, <laughs> creates muscles. Yeah. Creates yeah. muscles. We live in more... Adaptive In more stable environments. Uh, so, you know, maybe the implications of that is that uh, I will probably die 10, 15, 20 years ahead of my time, <laughs> you know, because it does drain the shit out of you, but, mm -hmm. um, but it sure keeps you alive. Mm. Yeah. So that it was more of a... And you never get bored. Mm. I mean, I go to sleep in New York, you know, it's really, I find it extremely peaceful. Yeah. I find Berlin and New York extremely peaceful. And Beirut too. is not? <laughs> I'll say Beirut is more peaceful than yeah. both of them Beirut combined. Beirut is violent as hell. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. Uh, but like you also, you also mentioned how you love the absurdity, but especially when it comes to Beirut, when you're doing architectural designs for Beirut, do you think that you try to implement some of the scars of Beirut history, let's say, for instance, the Civil War and BO18, how it used to be a bunker, as many people refer to it, in a symbol symbolic or metaphorical way? Uh, I, I, I think there was a tendency at some point in the 90s and beyond the 90s uh, to fetishize uh, uh, war, aestheticize war, and I think a lot of artists have surfed that wave. Um, I, I don't think I'm necessarily one of those. Yeah. I think uh, <clears throat> I like to think of my interventions uh, as interventions that were very much rooted in the present 
and I can take you, you know, from situation to situation and explain to you how they were really, uh, if anything, survival mechanisms, and they were also uh, very much, they fed very much on the present, uh, on, construction, on constructing situations and making situations possible, and if anything, manipulating uh, uh, these situations, sometimes in, in a perverted way, but always with good intentions. I'm not a bad person. So, uh, but, but, but the symbolic part of it, uh, no, I wouldn't go as far as, as you know, as, as, as describing my work as symbolic to the war or even as memorials to yes. the war. Uh, this whole coffin issue about the BO18 was, was more of an interpretation than, than something that we really was, was really central in, in our scheme. Um, you know, they, they refer to the shape of the building mm. as a coffin. It really was not. Even up until now, there was people, no intention uh, to do that. Even the nickname up until now, people refer to it as it, the bunker. The bunker. It's not that. It, uh, uh, it really was built like you conceive of a military installation, uh, with, you know, with conce conceived around engineering issues, the slope of its roof or the evacuation of the water. Uh, you know, continuous welds to make up its shell, like you build a, like you build the 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 like you build a ship. Um, maybe military architecture more than war, and yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. the defensive aspect of it. Yes, because I was always fascinated by that, by by oh, by man. by the military and. Uh, they're they're very very impressive. Uh, Technologically speaking, um, and they've always surpassed whatever we've done on the on the building front. Uh, technologically speaking, in fact, even the net comes from the military. I mean, everything comes from there. So yes, that was always always been a lot of interest for the military, um, airplanes and submarines and and ships and all sorts of. But but the furniture, yes, but you know the red velvet came from instrument boxes, not, mm. not coffins. I don't yeah. know why they coffins in there. Uh, you know that was an instrument, literally an apparatus that you closed, on which you danced, and then you opened it and you sat in it. But people saw coffins in there because, you know, we had twelve portraits of musicians on the tables on which we, for which we we light we lit a candle every night and we put a rose. But if you looked closely at the portraits, there were Charles Mingus, there were Umkaltum, there were Jaco Pastorius, there was mm. Serge Gainsbourg, there were people. Biggest name. There were Georges Brassens, there were all poets and musicians. They were not the victims of the massacre of the quarantine, like some German journalists said one day. So there were all sorts of fantasies. I even read this German um, uh, journalist who said that uh, I had discovered bones when I was digging the the, the uh, whole you, that you discovered you? bombs. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh -huh. you know, okay. Uh -huh. Morbid fantasies that uh, mm, are really that, that sell stories. I guess it's it's one hundred percent. It's more selling it. So like when I was abroad, I don't know if you guys have experienced this living in London. Maybe even you as well. Oh, you're from Beirut. Wait, don't you guys have that like club which is like a bomb shelter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To this day, they call yeah. it bunker bomb, bomb, bunker. Yeah. bomb bomb shelter. What what touches me most, and I've said this so many times, is my office is is just a. It's very close to, yeah. to the routine, is in the quarantine, and, and we work very late at night. And 
is amazing to hear at three. So you four, just finished working and go down at there. three four in the morning to hear the bass mm. coming out of that hole. Yeah, you know, it's like heartbeats coming out of a vagina. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and, and to me, this is what touched me most because mm. I think we brought life to see uh, in 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 an, maybe in an odd and but in a relevant way to an area that is still very much scarred by uh, by what has happened. No uh, more than ever. Not only the 76 massacre, of course, but many other, many other reasons that kept this whole area completely empty and it was bypassed. As the city sprawled uh, northbound, it bypassed the quarantine mm. and the whole, uh, that whole border of the port and beyond, which is supposed to be prime when it comes to mm. you know, urban condition or real estate to talk more in, you know, convention, in, 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 in commercial uh, financial terms. Uh, it's very strange that this area, I mean, I drive out of my office in two, three minutes, I'm smack in the middle of the, of the city center, mm. yet this area is still, you know, no one's there except yeah. the slaughterhouses, yeah. uh, the garbage company. Uh, Pre-industrial. I wanted to ask, why do you think that is? Because that, like you're saying, it is, why, why was it not gentrified, uh, not dig, that I'm complaining? You dig, you dig underneath the fabric of the city is the parcels, the ownership, the parcels, and you understand the, city, the, the history of the city, its DNA is in its parcels. Mm. And we did at some point with, at, at the UB with Georges Arbid uh, back in 2012, we did a research studio where we took a chunk of the city that I knew extremely well from my childhood, and we studied from the end of the Ottoman period till today at 10 years increments we studied the parcels, it, and uh, what we call in French le parcellaire. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and you see how, how, how it came around and, and how it basically they got uh, subdivided and cut and what, they, what was the content of those at every 10 years. And you really understand the history of the city through that. Mm. I suggest you do it at the quarantine, it's fascinating. Mm. It's fascinating, particularly the Forum de Beirut and where the BO18 is located. It is scary, mm -hmm. literally. And this is where the, the real story is, and it lies. Um, so when people tell me that, you know, I, 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 I danced on graves, I mean, I smile. Okay, whatever floats your boat. Yes, I danced on graves, but yeah. I mean, it goes beyond that. Yeah. You know, and there is much more uh, political thought behind the project and the superficial bullshit that they that they try to sell or, or they try to, uh, you know, Market, sacrifice yeah, before. Yeah. It's a shame because that area, Carantina, in general, um, you're talking about its significance and even from a perspective that we don't know, like I didn't know such historical significance behind no, the area. Same. And now it's suffering probably more than ever, being so close to the port. And obviously your office was there and we were talking off camera and you told us that there were some damages as well and took a certain period of recovery as well. But I just wanted to ask your opinion on the destruction that happened, seeing a lot of your projects destroyed, seeing a lot of, like you've referred to your, your as an architect, it's your baby. Kind of from that perspective, what is the loss from that kind of angle? Well, we have three buildings that were very severely damaged by the blast on, on August 4th. Uh, two of them were the closest residential buildings to the blast. Mm -hmm. And they are almost on every single shot that you see of the port uh, and the damage that was done to the port because they're literally there and there are two towers. 
they're, they're side by side. A bit further towards the center is facing uh, the, the Beit Kateh, the Falangist Party's headquarters, a building we had just completed, which also got severely damaged. So those are the three towers basically facing the port, and there were th all three of them were very, very severely hit. But before I talk about them being hit, it's interesting to see, and we went back at the office to the descriptive text of, in fact, two of the three, two of the three buildings, and it's very interesting to see that even back in 2008, uh, I start describing the 450 building, which is facing Beit Kateh, by saying Beirut is, is, a, is a port city. And that building starts, uh, the whole architectural strategy starts around uh, the relationship between that building, its fabric, obviously, but the port mainly. And it's very visible even in its articulation. The same applies to the two others. They're very much uh, articulated around the port, even uh, how they commit to a grid that is a result of the port. In their colors, uh, they very much address the port. In their cranes, uh, in their scale, in the abstraction of their cubical shapes, they address the port. Even, and I hate to say that, but even at the representational level, at the, at the, at the metaphorical level, they very uh, bluntly replicate the port and echo the port. As if, what even formally they do. Saifi 450 uh, you know, has cranes all over it, has big uh, cubes, uh, you know, is an assemblage of shapes that are very much in dialogue with the port. Before being in dialogue, before reflecting uh, the, 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 the fabric of the city at its proximity, uh, going all the way back to February 1976, the Black Saturday, it facing um, uh, uh, the Falangist Party headquarters, its proximity just, just a few meters from where the demarcation line was and where Solidaire or the Green Line started. It is a fortress, very much a defensive building, unlike many others or many other residential buildings that did at the same time, which were very much open to their neighborhoods, which had no skin, which were completely naked. This is a fortress that takes a defensive posture. At its entrance is a replica or a chunk of a replica of an Apache helicopter with a devil's tail and a huge mirror, retroviseur, I call it. So it's full of apparatuses and mechanisms of control. Uh, the control room of that building, which is usually tucked uh, three stories underground, full of screens, where you control every point of entrance and every sensitive point in the building is located in the military cockpit right at the entrance of the building. This was a defensive building, uh, uh, literally with, with a military, not only language, but strategies around you know, its, its logic of construction uh, and its organization. And it addresses the port and bang, I mean, what the hell. The, uh, what is called skyline, I hate the names they give them, but uh, I don't choose them, they're very commercial. Um, that building had two cannons, literally, pointing towards the sea. The sea being a new demarcation line. Um, uh, as my friend Ziad Antar says, and it's very true, the demarcation line today is no longer east and west. Uh, the port today has become, and our relationship to the sea, has become a very sensitive point. In, you know, in a broader political discussion today, our new demarcation line is the port. Uh, and our ability to open up or not open up, and whom we're opening up to. These two cannons 
had a lot of significance on that building besides the fact that they were just projectors, but they're very visible. And you could see them entering Beirut, and they were very odd. A lot of people were against me putting them up there. And it's very strange to see that these buildings were the first that were hit by the blast and the explosion of the port. It's as if it was their destiny. Um, and as if, you know, me saying for the last 30 years that the war was not over, and trying to, uh, trying to formulate that through my architecture and through my buildings, not in a negative way, uh, but if anything in a defensive way, uh, turned out to be true in many ways. It's extremely surreal that you kind of, you know, built these uh, kind of battlements facing the, facing, you know, the sea, and as if there was some level of foreshadowment. It's a coincidence, man, it's great. They literally got but they're not metaphorically put in yeah. use. They're not a coincidence. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're not a coincidence. Yeah. It's just like they are. Uh, they are circumstantial. They are. They're the. They're the result of not only me, but those who were with me on these projects. Who, because I'm not the only one intervening here. There are people investing. There are people who, mm. you know, and I want to salute the developers behind these buildings, who at the end of the day are not building memorials. They are behind financial ventures that are usually short term. They're selling, they're catering for bourgeois people, you know, housewives yeah. and, you know, and very often nouveau riche clientele. Uh, they are not supposed to take these kinds of postures and risks that could, you know, scare off uh, 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 a clientele who might be looking for sugar-coated, uh, you know, lifestyles and that kind of crap. Uh, we didn't do that. And I say we, not me, because what is beyond architecture, I, mean, I, I had a client of mine uh, from abroad, I do work with him abroad, developer who visited Beirut a couple of years back, and I, I, and I take him on a visit. We had just completed this building that some people call the banana, the ship, the whatever. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the one next to Jusrel Wattre? Yes, they call yeah. it the factory loft building. Yes. Oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Others call it the ship, the yeah, banana. Yeah. It has many yeah. names. And, uh, and that client of mine that, you know, the building was just completed, so I, I took him on the tip apartments that were kind of impressive. They had pointy balconies, great terraces around them, and I take them, take him from one apartment to the other, and I keep him. We tour around for two hours, he doesn't say a thing. And then we're in the car, and we're driving back, and I'm like, why isn't he congratulating me? I was very, I was very proud of what I'd done. And at some point, very honestly, he turns around and looks at me and says, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I should congratulate you. Don't be mad at me. I should congratulate your clients, those who made this possible. Mm -hmm. I can't, this is a developer who has a lot of experience. He's done some quite daring things with me in the past, but couldn't believe <coughs> that a developer would go as far as, as we had gone. So it's very important to understand that architecture is not an autonomous discipline. Yeah. We are not alone here. And, and this is where, you know, a lot of people come back to my entertainment projects as political acts, but they forget that what comes after, if anything, is even far more political because it deals with things that are, uh, well, first of all, deal with permanence now, deal with a much broader, broader audience and not the entertainment audience, which is usually an instant one night and is an exceptional state of debauchery where you can afford to do things. But when it comes to uh, the architecture of developers, you know, you're in conventions that are extremely limiting. And in order to uh, you know, try to produce meaning in such conditions, 
and have a developer with you who goes along and and you know and makes this agenda possible is is really exceptional so i was if anything very very lucky on that front to have met some smart people along uh, share your vision yeah. yeah i just think it's so sad now because after first of all not just the bomb but like the entire situation that lebanon has been going through over the past few years I think that now you have a mass amount of people that are exiting the country and that are traveling abroad and leaving. And I just feel that developers, for instance, and people that are going to be funding such projects is going to be much smaller than it was, let's say, five, six, seven years ago. And then the amount of clients that you have that can afford to constantly purchase property in these buildings is probably diminished right now. So wouldn't you say that it's a bit sad because you won't have as much opportunity as you had maybe back in 2014, 2013. In regards to rebuilding the... Uh, rebuilding or just if he wants to, you know, commissions. take a risk, start a new project. Well, I think it's definitely the end of, of an era. We lived, uh, we lived a bubble that was not very, uh, very uh, realistic on, 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 in, in financial in economical terms, um, certainly. I mean, I, I look at what we, what we've built, what I have built, uh, what I, what was built under my wing over the last 15 years, and, and the, the amount of surface, the, the number of buildings, uh, is uh, is quite impressive in terms of numbers. Uh, and that was due to the fact that uh, we were spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that we simply didn't have. We didn't have it. Huh? We were spending money that wasn't there, mm. uh, and that's a fact. Now that's not my fault. You know, I'm. Who am I to uh, to you just predict have to and make analyze this? this but that's how banking works. It's representative of yeah, exactly. This is the entire banking sector in Lebanon, the Ponzi scheme. Spending money you don't. Uh, that's have. over. Now that that's over, and that was over quite a while ago. And yeah. and my my last commission that was that is worth talking about in terms of scale goes back to 2016, and that is now on hold, not to say aborted. These people owe me a lot of money. At so you still didn't receive that money from 2016 up to now? You still uh, have I have money. basically finished missions that had been started prior to that, because we work on missions sometimes that go on for four, five, six, seven years. So by end of 2019, we're pretty much done with all the local files. And since then, we've been working uh, abroad, which usually is around 50% of our volume. Yeah. Today we're down to that, and, uh, and locally, uh, as far as 2020 is concerned, zero. Mm -hmm. There's nothing left. So, we're, for instance, right, you've seen the architectural damage that has happened to the city, especially in areas like Ashrafiyye, Marm Khayel, Jemmeize, Badaru, etc. How, just how can we get funding to in order to rebuild most of the damage that has gone by? Is that even an option? Are yeah, people, exactly. are people yeah. willing to fund? Yeah, what's the process? How, how, can, you, how can we fix you, the damage? You'd, you'd be surprised. Um, no, I hate to say that there, there's something positive behind all of that. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, uh, it's sad to say it, but, but let's look at the positive end of things. Um, a lot of these buildings, but the, the, the big stuff you see, was insured, yeah. and which means it was reinsured, yeah. which means it was reinsured at 90% uh, abroad, which means that uh, there are billions, hundreds of millions, if not billions, mm. uh, of, of dollars that will come, of foreign currency that will come 
uh, that has to come and will come. In order to repair uh, them? Uh, just from insurance and reinsurance. Mm. Uh, there is that. So that will save the new developments at least. Mm. And, and the few that had uh, you know, the luxury or the means to insure themselves. Now, the problem is those who were not insured, and that's where the biggest, the biggest problem lies. <laughs> Which is the, the old Beirut that, and, that, yeah. and that's, that's usually the structures that were not necessarily close to the blast, but were not very sound because they were built, uh, they, they were not built according to seismic regulations. And, uh, and the Remli structures are very, very uh, uh, sensitive and not very, very solid. Uh, but there's been great work done by NGOs uh, and, and local, very spontaneous efforts. Mm. I think very impressive. Um, so there will be a lot of help also, also on that front. I trust that very soon, probably in, in, in a year or less, uh, you know, most of the traces will be gone. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's very optimistic, but do you think you would continue to work on a large scale in new projects over here, or would you continue? Because as you said now, most of your work is, most of your projects are based abroad. Yes. Do you think, would you want that to continue, or would you want to create? Well, I, prefer, I prefer to work here, obviously. Yeah. Uh, because, first of all, I have full control over, over my architectural missions here, up until delivery, so I don't depend on a local and I don't have to let go at an early stage, and, uh, which is very painful. Um, so I have much more control locally. I think it's a very, Beirut and Lebanon in general is a territory that is, is, is very rich. It keeps you alive, as we said earlier. But I don't see in those circumstances any new work for us coming any soon. But you know, I'm excited about the rehabilitation uh, that has to be done to uh, at least a couple of buildings that were very damaged. Where we're thinking right now that it's not necessarily a rehabilitation in the, in the, in the limited sense of the term, that these buildings shouldn't necessarily be rebuilt exactly as they were. You could modify a few things. Because we would be in complete denial of, yeah. of something very important that has happened. So uh, this may be the an interesting negotiation now not with one single developer who is managing an agenda, but with you know, sometimes a hundred co-owners, mm -hmm. with people who think that you know, it should be absolutely, it should be pristine like it was, if it's, as if nothing had happened, or others that are more willing to engage in another kind of dialogue. So there is another negotiation which could be exciting mm -hmm. and full of you know, another challenge that won't be easy to, uh, to win. What about preserving? Because obviously those areas, it's it's uh, you know there's a mix of gentrification with these new skyscrapers and big buildings, but there's also a very romantic side, which is the old Beirut, the, the older buildings, the, the heritage, heritage that yeah. have been around. Those are essentially destroyed. So how do we maintain the preservation of the basically traditionalness behind all of that while also rebuilding the area? Is it possible? Can we do it? I think a lot of the a lot of the heritage buildings, if not all of them, will be should be at least uh, rebuilt uh, because we've lost a lot of those structures uh, prior to the blast. Uh, 
after the war itself, uh, so they were not necessarily conventional acts of destruction, but they were the destruction of the development of Beirut was far more violent than 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 the the actual damage of the war. So the few that are left should be preserved. Um, now there's preservation in the conventional sense of the term, meaning rebuild it, rebuild it as it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not against that if it's if it's well done. Yeah. Uh, for the alternatives, uh, it's very difficult, uh, and I don't think you can apply that as a norm uh, because. Uh, We've seen a few attempts. I don't want to point at anyone or any particular failed attempt in mass, but we've seen uh, the disnification of, uh, of of ruins, and that is absolutely catastrophic. I don't think that's what I've done with Central. I think Central uh, had a certain had a certain uh, had a certain credibility when it came to the violence of our intervention and and the way we've articulated it. But we've seen after that the monkeying of that. Uh, you know, and and uh, and the disnification of of war, whereby you know we, we retrace and we 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 simulate bullet holes in walls, and we, uh, we 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 build, we install false prophecies on a facade, and it looks absolutely ridiculous. So I'd rather not go there, and resort to to more conventional um, uh, rehabilitation uh, in the very conventional sense of the term rather than bad alternative approaches. Yeah. But a lot, a lot you, of you still have hope. Sorry. <laughs> it seems like it seems like you still have hope for this country in terms of rebuilding and I don't know if I'd call it a country. I don't know if you could ever call uh, it a country. Yeah. Sorry, you you, you still have hope for this geographical location. As for a this, country, uh, I don't think Lebanon's black ever had void. A, yeah. I don't think we've ever had a model where you're a proper country. Well it depends on what you know what kind of environment you're looking for. Um, I don't think I can. I, I told you earlier, I, I would I would go rest in New York and Berlin, but you know I wouldn't be able to stay there for more than you know a week or ten days because you know you, you sleep, you sleep, but after a while you get bored. So so interesting. I'm not used to being this happy. it's so weird how you uh, how you say Berlin is super peaceful or New oh, York. I, I know Berlin. Is, is, I, mean, I lived in Berlin. Yeah. You know, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, in the late yeah, '90s, yeah. I know Berlin extremely well. My first project abroad was in Berlin. Uh, Berlin in '99, when I worked uh, in Berlin, we had we had a very important project in Berlin. Uh, was far more radical than, yeah. than the Berlin we know today, right. and I found it extremely peaceful. Fair enough. Fair such enough. a peaceful place. Yeah, I know. Such a sweet place. Yeah, I, I think because everything is. Relative. I think because we we know Berlin as you know this very intense nightlife exactly and you go in at 10 a.m. and you leave at i don't know what god knows three I mean, days that's later you take a pill and then you can stay up you can stay up for three or four days in a row anywhere <laughs> you, you'll like even in Harajid, you can do that yeah. <laughs> essentially but I, I can understand what you mean you can sleep easier there here it's yeah literally it's gotten to the point where are we waking up tomorrow but it's good to see somebody who's you know, kind of the embodiment of Lebanon and Lebanese architecture and nightlife and so many more different aspects kind of have hope and a bit of optimism because I think at this point we can't afford to just be completely pessimistic. So, um, I mean, from our end, we really want to we really want to thank you because uh, I think we came off as very intellectual and we are not in the slightest, but I think being <laughs> around you definitely helped. And uh, yeah, 
keep on doing the amazing work that you're doing and thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank you for listening to this episode. Please make sure to like, follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Rami, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook and I'm a Sabal. Thank you. Also, we'd love your feedback. So please DM us on Instagram at Fauda2020.